0: Good morning. Welcome to the Unitarian Church of Edmonton. My name is Violet Sullivan. I will be your service leader this morning. We do hope you feel welcome here. As Unitarian Universalists, we are bound together by, not not by a common set of beliefs, but by our promise to support one another in our individual searches for truth and meaning, guided by our principles and drawing from many sources. We do hope you feel welcome here. Whatever you believe or don't believe, whomever you love, however you understand family, whatever your age, race, or ability, you are welcome here. We invite you to join us in a journey of free thought, spiritual questing, and justice-making for as long as you feel comfortable doing so. We extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. Please join us after the service for coffee and conversation. We gather with gratitude this morning on traditional Cree lands, now part of G-6 and shared by many nations. We respect the histories, languages, and cultures of the indigenous people who have called this land home and enrich our vibrant community. Our community extends beyond the Sunday morning gathering. Please read the announcements in the order of service. We also have a monthly newsletter available in print and online. You can join our virtual community on Facebook and Twitter to keep up to date on happenings in our extended community. Now let us prepare our hearts and minds for worship. Let us let go just for a time of the everyday world. We'll silence our phones and devices and we'll create a space in this hour simply to be together. The spirit of life and love we gather. In order to focus ourselves for the service, I invite you to an opening time of reflection as we listen to the prelude that marks the star of our service.
1: Oh, she will bring the... In the spring and laugh among the flowers. In summer's heat, her kiss is sweet. She sings in leafy bowers. She cuts the cane and gathers the grain when leaves are fall around her. Her bones grow old in wintery cold. She wraps her cloak around her. Well, she will bring the buds in the spring and laugh among the flowers. In summer's heat, her kiss is sweet. She sings in leafy as she cuts the cane and gathers the green when leaves are fall around her, her bones rolled in winter, cold. She wraps her cloak around her. La 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 and she will bring the buds in the spring and laugh among the flowers. In summer's heat her is sweet, she sings in leafy boughs. She cuts the cane and gathers the grain when leaves the fall surround her. Her bones grow old in wintery cold, she wraps her cloak around her. Oh, she will bring the buds in the spring and laugh among the flowers. In summer's heat her kisses are sweet, she sings in leafy boughs. She cuts the cane and gathers the grain when leaves are false around her. Her bones grow old in wintery cold, she wraps her cloak around her. She will bring the buds in the spring and laugh among the flowers. In summer's heat, her kisses are sweet, she sings in leafy boughs. La, 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 la,
0: Rises light, rises life, and rises spring. May we join in the miracle that is springtime and enter into our life with lightness and joy. Out of the Spirit rises faith, rises hope, rises love. May we join in the miracle that is the Easter time and enter into our life with hope and love. Let us resurrect with spring. Let us resurrect with the spirit, and enter into renewed life as we gather into our time of worship together this Easter morning. For holy days on which we recall the old stories, we light
2: the flame. For Passover, which reminds us of the courage and strength of those seeking freedom in the past, we light the flame. For Easter, which reminds us that love is our greatest challenge, we light the flame. For gathering today in the sacred space, we light the flame. For the opportunity to be together as a community to remember the past to plan for our future to be alive in our present now i invite you to stand as you are willing and able and open your blue hymn books to number 1021 lean on me
3: One of the things Easter's lessons teaches is perhaps a lesson in humility, and I'm having one. We have an Easter bunny on hand right now. He's eating one of my
4: sermons.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I have a story to offer for anybody who wants to come up and hear it, and after the service, anybody who wishes to can go over and visit our Easter bunny. But anybody who wants to come hear a story, come on up now. So I have a story today. It's not exactly an Easter story, but kind of it is, because it's about courage and everything else. And it's a story that um, actually these girls heard when they were younger than you. They were very, very young. It's called The Kissing Hand by Audrey Penn. Now, Chester Raccoon stood at the edge of the forest and cried, I don't want to go to school, I'm afraid. I don't want to go to school, Mom. I want to stay home with you. I want to play with my friends and play with my toys and read my books and swing on my swing. I want to stay with you. Poor old Chester. Mrs. Raccoon took Chester by the hand and nuzzled him on the ear. You know, Sometimes we have to do things that we don't want to do, she said gently, even if they're kind of scary and upsetting and make us all anxious. We have to do some of the things we don't want to do. And you're going to love school once it starts. You'll make new friends, play with new toys. You get to read new books. You get to swing on new swings and enjoy your teacher's It'll be great. The nights at school will soon seem as cozy as the days you spend at home. She says, and I know a wonderful secret that's going to make it so much easier for you. Well, Tester wiped his eyes and said, a secret? You're going to show me a secret? I love secrets. What's the secret, Mama? Mama. Oh, it's a very old secret, said Mrs. Raccoon. I learned it from my mother, and she learned it from yours. It's called the kissing hand. The kissing hand, asked Chester. What's that? I'll show you. Mrs. Raccoon took Chester's left hand and spread his paw wide as it could, and then she bent down and she kissed the open palm. Chester felt his mother's kiss rush from his hand, up his arm, even through his silky black mask. It all tingled with a special kind of warmth. Mrs. Raccoon smiled. Now, she told Chester, whenever you feel lonely or need a little bit of loving from home, all you have to do is hold that up to your cheek and you'll think, Mommy loves you. Mommy loves you, and that kiss will jump right onto your face and fill you with toasty, warm thoughts. She took Chester's hand and carefully wrapped his fingers around the kiss. Now, do be careful not to lose it, she teased him, but don't worry, when you open your hand to wash your food, it'll stick. It won't wash off. Chester loved his kissing hand, and now that he knew he would have his mother's love wherever he went, So that evening, they went off to school, because raccoons, of course, aren't nocturnal animals. That night, Chester stood out front of his school and looked thoughtful. And suddenly, he turned to his mother, and he grinned at her. Give me your hand, he said. Chester took his mother's hand in his own and unfolded her large, familiar paw and spread it wide into a fan. And next he leaned forward and kissed the center of her palm and then gently closed it up again. Now you have a kissing hand too, he told her. And with a gentle goodbye and I love you, Chester turned and danced away. Mrs. Raccoon watched Chester scamper across the field and enter the school in the old hollow tree. And as the hood rang in the new school year, she pressed her left hand to her cheek and smiled. The warmth of Chester's kiss filled her heart with those special words, Chester loves you, Chester loves you. And that's the story of the kissing hand. It's always nice to know that whatever's going on, we can carry love with us. All right, you guys go back to your seat, and I think Nakai is up next.
2: Our community is entirely self-governing and self-supporting. One of the privileges of our free church tradition is to provide all the financial support of our many ministries from among ourselves. Generosity, therefore, is one of the spiritual values we recognize as central to our personal and situational well-being. In addition to supporting this church community, we also make a monthly commitment beyond our walls. One half of the unidentified cash that is received is given to an outside organization. Some are local, some are national, some are international. For the month of April, we are sharing our abundance with Unitarian Universalist United Nations office. You are invited to participate in the celebration of giving as the ushers accept the offering. If you Like you can use the envelopes found inside the cover of your hymn book if you wish to receive a tax receipt for your gift. Please indicate on the envelope your contact information so we can send you a tax receipt at year end. Many of our friends and members give monthly or annually through automatic withdrawal from their accounts. We thank you. We thank you for your generosity and your support. With our time, our talents, and our money, we support the work of the community and Unitarian Universalist tradition. Please join us in singing to receive the offering.
3: take uh, some time to recognize the joys and sorrows uh, that touch our lives in a ritual practiced by many Unitarian Universalist communities. We light candles to mark these significant moments and events in our lives. I invite anyone who wishes to do so to come forward and uh, light a candle for whatever it is on their minds and hearts today. we carry the the joys concerns and moments are represented in these tiny lights in our hearts they express very deeply that we are not alone
0: please join us in singing hymn number 123 and you may remain seated In the moments when the word is silence give yourself to it in wholeness and wait let the knowing of this primal sound tear you into circles where sound itself where silence itself becomes new and the new a song you sing from your bones
5: What is hiding in those weak and drunken hearts? Guess he kissed the girls and made them cry those hard faced queens of misadventure. God knows what is hiding in those weak and sunken lives fiery thrones of muted angels giving love again.
3: the early 19th century, the Bible, and specifically the Gospels, were taken as literal fact within the Christian world. Jesus was a divine child, had a miraculous birth, did miracles as a young adult, was a great teacher, was executed for heresy, and rose from the dead to sit with his Father, God, in heaven. That was, well, that was the Gospel truth. Early in the 19th century, however, scholars started looking at the Bible in a new way. First, they considered the historical context. What else did we know about the times in which Jesus lived? And, of course, his predecessors, the prophets. And they noticed some discrepancies in the accounts. How some of the story elements did not fit in with typical Roman practices of the day or with historical facts that were easily provable. This was the first discipline in what would be grouped into the field of biblical criticism. Now, next, other scholars began to study the structure of the texts. They looked at the language, they looked at the syntax, they looked at the kinds of messages that were different from one to the other. They compared copies of the scriptures and noted things like translation errors and copying mistakes. They noted that some of the gospels were written in very elegant Greek and some in a very common language, very coarse. And they began to think that each account was written at a different time and for a different audience. And, of course, they observed what had already been known for a long time and explained with some torturous and twisting arguments that the four gospel accounts and the epistles of Paul actually tell different stories about Jesus, sometimes presenting a strikingly different Jesus altogether. Now, some of the differences are small, especially between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and others are very, very striking. Now, this stirred the pot at least among liberals and many academics, and that began to erode the idea that the Gospels were factual representations of the life of Jesus. Now, I've spoken about this at length in sermons and classes in the past, and I plan to spare you all that today because it is a holiday. And partly because, you see, I'm no longer interested in asking the question, is this story factually true? In the liberal Unitarian Church, I don't think that the facts of the story matter quite so much. What matters is the story itself. What can it teach us about living? About dying? About the rebirth of hope and love? Is there anything of value in this story for me or for us? Is this a story ...that will satisfy atheists or humanists or agnostics. Well, about 60 years ago, a Canadian scholar named Northrop Fry... ...began a new form of biblical study called literary criticism. In effect, he said, let's look at how the story has been written... ...and what the structure of the story is telling us. Let's not worry so much about the truth, the facts which is ultimately a matter of faith, but consider instead the Bible as a piece of literature. Now, once he did that, the facts of the gospel became irrelevant. Whether or not all these magical things happened simply didn't matter anymore. The Bible became more like Shakespeare or Jane Austen or Charles Dickens. The Bible became a literary work. Now, for those of us who do struggle with the literalness of scripture, and I expect that means uh, the majority of the people in this room, I'm going to suggest that the idea of the Bible as story is a welcome relief. Irreverent as it may sound, I would much prefer to look at Jesus in the same way as I look at Hamlet or Mr. Darcy or Scrooge. And frankly, I think the story of Jesus as a man is far more interesting than the story of Jesus as God made man. Let's take one small aspect of the passion story. After the Last Supper, just before his arrest, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Now, if he's God, then his prayers are going to be more like, Dad, can we skip this part? It looks like it's really going to be unpleasant, man. Can we just cut to the chase? Because we are God and all of that. And if you read enough teen literature or watched enough father-son movies, you know that the reply that God does not actually give in the scripture probably went something like, Son, you got yourself into this. You're going to have to take the consequences. It's going to make a God out of you, boy. You still have much to learn, so suck it up, kid. Still, Jesus knows that his death is going to be a temporary physical thing, a painful couple of days in the span of eternity. I'm sorry, that never really struck me as a big deal. But if you look at this as a human story, it becomes far more compelling, I think. Most of us have read our share of fiction, I'm sure. Why? Because it allows us to get lost in a story. To get wrapped up in the telling of a tale, in the humanity that the authors are trying to describe. We identify with some of the characters, we reject others of the characters, we envision their situations, their lives, their context, their drama, their suffering. It becomes real. So consider a human Jesus in the garden. He's known for a long time that he's riled up the temple authorities. And he's got a pretty good idea that the Romans are getting into the act. And he has seen what the Romans can do. There is a good chance that on his way into Jerusalem the week before, he passed a bunch of crosses, people being crucified. The Romans back then liked to keep order by punishing fast, hard, and very publicly. So this must have been weighing on this man's mind. Like many of the great agents of social change, Joan of Arc, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, he knows that there is a real threat to his life out there. And knowing finally that Judas is turning him in, well, that seals it. So he goes out in the darkness and finds, in that classic painting you always see, a rock against which he can kneel down and begin to pray. Jesus is a faithful man. He believes in God. He believes in the afterlife. But if he's a man, then it's simply a belief, an act of faith. It is not the assurance of known fact. How terrifying it must have been, kneeling there, stomach heaving, a cold sweat running down his brow, knowing that his arrest his torture, and his near-inevitable execution is imminent. In fact, the Gospel account says that Jesus sweated blood in the garden. At dinner, his pals all said that they were going to stand by him, but when he gets up to check with them, they've fallen asleep. He is truly, utterly, despairingly alone. Every person is at the moment of their death. So what made him do it? He obviously was a wise man, supposedly well-educated despite his low birth, skilled in the art of discourse and persuasion. He probably comfortably could have stayed in Galilee and had a very nice life as a sort of regional religious leader. But no, he felt compelled to go and walk upon the larger stage of Jerusalem, seat of the Roman government, home to the temple, the institution that controlled virtually every aspect of life that the Romans did not run. He couldn't possibly have been so egocentric as to think that he could topple both of those hierarchies, could he? Could he? As in all literary ventures, if they engage us, We have to weigh the motivations and the actions of the characters. We make the story personal for us and come to own it. And we decide whom to admire and whom to despise. However, said the Catholic kid, when we receive the story wrapped in church doctrine, when we are handed the account with a single absolute interpretation already mapped out, those things are explained in a most unsatisfying way. Jesus had to die because it was his duty and God's will. Jesus died for our sins, thereby reopening the gates of heaven for us, regaining the possibility of our salvation. And then there is the creedal doctrine that God offered his only son in sacrifice for us. What? All-powerful and all-knowing God chooses to go through such a small-minded and mean-spirited charade in order to give us something he could provide at any time? That's abusive. That's not forgiving. Who would want to worship so petty a deity? One who condemned generations to torment just because they said the wrong prayers or ate the wrong food. To say it strains credulity is generous. Now, I'm not anti-God. I'm not an atheist, but I am a rational man. And this petty tribal divinity is simply not rational. It just doesn't make sense to me. Now, whatever God might be like, well, that's a theme for some other sermon. But today is Easter, when liberals sometimes choose to wrestle with this bizarre and irrational tale. Looking at Jesus as divine, I'm sorry, it doesn't work for me. Maybe it does for you, that's fine, but it doesn't work for me. It gives me no peace or satisfaction. But to look at the story of the brave, passionate, and maybe foolhardy man, then you have a scenario that stirs compassion. We can place ourselves in that story and say, I might do that, or no way, man, I wouldn't do that part. Or I wish I had that kind of courage and conviction. Or this man had no practical sense. There are better ways to achieve his goals. Well, that's when the story of Jesus becomes real for me. I couldn't do what he did. This character of Jesus was far too certain of his cause, of the righteousness of his message, and I am far too fascinated with the gray areas of living and far too concerned with pragmatism to ever be the black-and-white dreamer that Jesus was. I doubt I could put my life on the line like that, or perhaps I've simply never found the cause or situation that would call me to consider that option. But I love the challenge of comparing and contrasting myself to a character in a story and asking, what if I was in that situation? It's a tool for refining our worldview and for resetting our moral compass with more sophistication. This month, we've been looking at wholeheartedness as our theme. Jesus pursued his mission with as much wholeheartedness as I can possibly imagine. He had a deep belief in the rights and righteousness of the little people. He believed religion belonged to all people, not just to the temple authorities. He devoted himself to listening to the plain folks and to helping them and to take on the powers that would exploit them and keep them subservient. His mission was a wide and expansive love for the lives and the souls of the disenfranchised. That's an idea I can get behind. But that's just one theme that emerges from the story, one theme that I'm reading in the story today. You can may have a completely different way of looking at it, and I encourage you to read the stories again and figure out what it might mean for you. But I want to close by sharing a passage from a letter written to a humanist magazine by a former Christian As he discussed Easter, he said, it's time again to look beyond the letter and literal interpretation of immortality, heaven, hell, miracles, and see the essence and the spirit of those ideas. What is it about love that survives death? What is the ideal world? What is the eternal separation from all that is good? Where do fundamentally new ideas and relationships come from? In the 21st century, we are able to see more clearly than the saints before us, just as Jesus was able to see more clearly than the prophets that came before him. To see that deeds of love live on forever in the hearts and minds of all those who are transformed by such love and by those who value loving acts of goodness and justice. This is the immortality of the saints. He goes on, I find that I'm better able to love and appreciate Jesus as a humanist, imagining him as a man than when I was a Christian and imagined him as a God or a spiritual presence. Jesus was a man, and therefore he was one of us, and we truly can become like him. End of quote. Jesus lived a wholehearted life, and that's something I can admire. That's where I can feel called to do better in my life, and that's where I can find meaning in the Easter story with ideas to which I can aspire. Amen. Our closing hymn for Easter is Buddhist, because we do that sort of thing around here. In your teal hymn book, it's number 1031. May I be filled with loving kindness, and we'll go through it twice. 1031, I invite you to stand as you're willing or able. Our chalice is extinguished, but its light lives on in the minds and the hearts and the souls of each one of you. So carry it with you when you leave this place and share it with those you love, with those you know, and most especially with those you've yet to meet. It is our tradition to join hands at the end of the service and sing, carry the flame of peace and love until we meet again, and then to listen to a postlude and then to sit down for some announcements.